Luke chapter 12, starting from verse 29. And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And from verse 54. He also said to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, A shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, There will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And the passage um, that Pastor Ben will be preaching from today is Luke chapter 16, verses 1 to 13. Luke 16, starting from verse 1. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Well, hello everyone. Good afternoon. Not that good afternoon then. Bad afternoon. Good afternoon. Okay. Um, it's great to see everyone here today. Uh, it's nice to see the hall a little bit more full. We've been a bit uh, smaller at 11.40 over the last few weeks. Uh, so it's great to see everyone here. Um, my name is Ben. For those of you I haven't met, there are a few uh, unfamiliarish faces. Uh, I'd love to meet you if I haven't had a chance to do so before. And if you're new to SLE Church, uh, really warm welcome to you especially. Uh, and uh, please do come along to our newcomers uh, lunch that will be happening in a couple of weeks. Um, we'd love to uh, speak to you more about the church and hear more about you and where you're from and uh, see how we can serve you. 
Um, thanks for joining us today. We're actually in the, the last sermon in this sermon series, as uh, you've heard from Simeon and Steve. Uh, it's been a long journey over the last few months looking at these uh, middle section of Luke. Uh, and we'll be uh, doing a bit of a uh, summary of that at the beginning of the sermon before we f- finish on this passage uh, in Luke 16. Uh, as always, you'll find the uh, bulletin, uh, which will have the sermon outline online on our uh, webpage, uh, sle.church. So if you do want to quickly download that PDF uh, to follow along, uh, please do so. Um, sadly, in the COVID age, we can't give out handouts anymore. Um, so you have to download that in advance. But the best thing you could do is to keep your Bibles open to Luke 16. We'll be working through these 13 verses. Um, and um, the next best thing to do after that will be to pray that God will speak to us. So please join me now as I pray for us. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Gospel of Luke. We thank you how in these past few months we've been able to so clearly see who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. As we finish this sermon series today, we pray that we will not quickly forget the lessons that we've learned over the past few months. And if we have, that we will take the effort to go back and read through your word again and to remember the things that you've taught us and to consider how we've applied or not applied what your word has said. We pray that you help us not just be readers of the word, but doers of it also. And today, as we look into this topic, as we consider our life in light of eternity, as we, continue, as we consider our present in light of our future, help us to live in such a way that truly reflects our belief in the coming kingdom of God. Help us to be more shrewd than the people of this world in the way we live for the future that we expect. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as I said, we've been through a fairly long journey through these middle section, this middle section of Luke's gospel. We began about three months or so back in the middle of Luke 9, uh, where this section began with Jesus setting his face towards Jerusalem, right, where he would go uh, to be uh, rejected and then die on the cross before being raised again. And in that section, we saw very clearly who Jesus is. Right? He is God's king. Uh, he is the Christ. And then after that, in the, future, in the chapters that we've uh, been through until now, we've seen what it means to, to follow this king, follow this Christ, Jesus, what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and, and, and the biggest picture sense of, 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 the, of following Jesus is about giving our lives entirely over to Jesus, right? Giving our lives entirely over to Jesus. It is to listen to his voice that tells us what life is about and how to live and to obey what Jesus says. Uh, disciples of Jesus are those who will serve and seek his kingdom first. But we've also seen over the past few months in these chapters that there will be many who will refuse to do so. They will remain unrepentant. They will reject Jesus' rule and salvation. They will continue to live for themselves by their own self-righteousness, and they will live for the things of this world. And we we keep hearing that they will remain lost, and they will be left out of God's kingdom, of the kingdom of Jesus Christ when he returns. And in the midst of that, we've seen some pretty horrific pictures of what it looks like to be left out of the kingdom, to be rejected by Jesus. It is a terrifying future uh, that we can't really uh, imagine, but we would would not want a piece of because it's so bad. Now, over the past few months, I know, uh, in having spoken to many of you, that we felt the strong weight of Jesus' call and instruction. It is not a a small thing or an easy thing to give up our whole lives uh, to let it belong to Jesus, to let him tell us how to live. But I hope also that in the past few months, you'll be able to feel the weight of joy 
the, the glory of grace, the, the, the hugeness of blessing uh, that comes from being a disciple and follower of Jesus. Just last week, we heard Pastor Steve preach with tears the amount of lavish and extravagant grace and love that flows out from the Father. And we see as Jesus is journeying towards Jerusalem, he's going there to die for our sins, to, to be gracious to us so that we can have a place in his kingdom. The, the place in heaven, our future reality, of far, far more than we deserve is the grace that we receive, the love that we receive from God and his Son. And so today, as we end this long series, uh, we, we do recognize it's kind of in the middle of nowhere, right? This section really does end in chapter 19 when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. Uh, and even in this chapter, he will continue to speak about money to the end of the chapter. But we will leave it here because we will start in the book of Revelation next week. Uh, we will probably come back and pick up uh, Luke's gospel sometime in the future. But we end today, I think, on a, on a pretty good place. It's a, a very concrete and practical place to finish. And in a way, it, it's a, it will give us a great insight into the discipleship that we claim to have. It will give us an insight into whether we're truly following Jesus as we look at the issue of money. Right, we're talking about money matters today, and money really does matter when it comes to our discipleship. Now, John Wesley, a famous church historian and songwriter, once famously said, the last part of a man or a woman to be converted is his or her wallet. Right, the last part of a person to be converted is his or her wallet. Right? How we spend our money, how much we want to keep for ourselves, it tells us a lot about whether we're truly believers or not. Now, maybe the statement's a bit overstated. Right? I'm not sure that the, the wallet really is the last part to be converted, but it's very telling what we do with our money. Our bank statements and our credit card statements make a big statement about the state of our faith, about the importance of Jesus as our king, and the importance of his kingdom. It will reveal whether we are truly seeking God's kingdom first. Who we spend our money on, how we spend our money, or why we spend our money says a lot about what we really live for, what we really love, and what we really ultimately believe in. Like which God is it that we are truly serving? Now, as we look into Luke 16 then, we, we see this passage, uh, and it's a very strange parable, right? It's probably one of the most difficult parables to interpret of all the parables that Jesus taught, uh, because in it, there's a strange guy, and he's commended for a strange thing. What exactly is Jesus trying to teach us in this strange parable? So let's have a look. Now, in this parable, chapter 16, we have a dishonest manager. Uh, some really rich man has put this guy in charge over all of his possessions, Right, maybe his uh, estate, uh, his palace, or his big house, his farms, his assets, and so on. But then charges are brought against this manager to the rich man that this manager has been mismanaging. Right? He's been dishonest in his dealing with the master's possessions. And so this manager is now facing the sack. Right? He's been told you know, to wrap up his work, to, to tidy up the books, all right, uh, all the administration that he's been doing, and to, to get his stuff together and then get out. Right? Get out of this manager's house, get out of this manager's employment. Now, this uh, white-collar manager, we discover, is uh, too soft, right? He's a white-collar guy, so he's too soft to go and dig, right? His hands are too soft, uh, and he's likely been living, up, uh, living a good life, right, with all this dishonest gain that he's been getting, skimming off the master, so he's now too proud, right, too, too shameful to, to go and beg. So what does he do? Well, he comes up with a very crafty plan, right, to secure his future. His final act as a manager, is to go around to the many debtors of the master, right? And, and he goes to each debtor to decrease their debt. 
Now, most likely, even though we're not told, he's probably decreasing the amount of interest that is being charged, that is being overcharged, right, to these debtors. Otherwise, he would just be stealing, right, if he was taking money off the principal. But whatever it is, we see that this, this crafty manager is giving discounts to these uh, debtors, and these discounts happen to be very, very large. Now, we read a passage like this, and it's all kind of uh, Old Testament or Old Times kind of language, right? A hundred measures of oil, right? It's a discount for the first guy. And we're like, how much is that? But, you know, if you know your oil prices, it's expensive what oil is. And if you do your calculations, um, hundred measures of oil discount amounts to about 1,000 denarii. And you're like, yeah, Ben, I understand what a denarii is. No, you don't, right? A denarii is an average day's wage, right, for a worker in that time. So a thousand denarii is three years, about three years worth, of an average income. Now the Australian average income is $80,000. So this is a discount of $240,000, right, for the first guy. The second guy gets a discount of 50 measures of oil, so you do your sums, half that is about $120,000 discount the manager is giving. And the last guy gets a 20 measures of wheat discount. And if you go and research it, it ends up being about the same as the other guy, right? The 50 measures of oil, which is a $120,000 discount. Now, many of you here are young, but there are a few of us here who own homes, which means that we own a huge mortgage. Where we don't own our home, the bank does. Can you imagine if the bank called you one day and said, by the way, I'm going to give you a $240,000 discount on your mortgage repayments. How would you feel? But I see around here that there are many having scholarships here, right? That you're slaves to the Singapore government. So why imagine, right? The Singapore government say, well, okay, don't worry about it, right? $240,000 bond, I'll wipe it away, right? You're free to get married, have children, set up your own practice, retire, whatever it is, right? No more obligations. How would you feel? Now for these debtors, they would have felt so indebted, wouldn't they? to this manager who's now come around and given them this huge discount, right? He scratched their back. Do you think that they will scratch his back when he's in need? I, I would think so. When he's thrown out after being sacked, maybe they'll take him into their homes, into their businesses, give him a job, give him a living. That's what this guy is trying to do. Now comes the punchline of the parable, verse 8. The master's response to the manager's action. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. That's weird, isn't it? The master does what? He, he commends, he praises, right? He kind of tips his hat in acknowledgement uh, of, the, of the manager's crafty actions. Now, I'm not sure about you guys, but it seems like a very strange response from the master to commend this dishonest manager who's come up with this crafty plan. Now, what exactly is the master praising the manager for? What exactly is he praising? Because we've got to figure that out if we've got to figure out how to apply this passage, don't we? Now, clearly, he isn't praising or commending the manager's dishonesty in dealing with his property. After all, he got the sack, right? The master was angry and sacked the manager for that dishonest dealing, right? For that immorality. So it can't be that. It's got to be the crafty, clever plan that he subsequently came up with to deal with his new situation that he finds himself in. The master isn't commending the immorality of the initial dishonesty. He is commending him for his subsequent cleverness in dealing with his new situation. He played his cards well, didn't he, the master? And the, sorry, the, the manager. And the master acknowledges that. He played his cards well. 
He saw that the manager knew the bleak future that lay ahead of him, and he did what he could within his means to be able to get ahead, right? To, to prepare for that future. Now, in the second half of verse 8, we move out of the story from the parable, from the strange parable, and into Jesus' clear explanation for the point, right, of this parable. Just so we don't misunderstand or we don't misapply, right? And Jesus says his point, second half of verse 8. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Now, the sons of this world is a common expression used by Jews to describe people who belong to this world, who live in this world, who don't believe in God. In contrast to the sons of light, who are those who believe in God, right? They are those who know the light, see the light, and so they're the people of God. And Jesus is pointing out in the second half of verse 8 a very simple fact. The people of this world know how to deal with their own people, to know how to deal with their own situation, to know how to deal with their own futures, more so than the people of God. They live now for their futures better than Christians live now for their futures. Unbelieving people can be so much more clever, so much more consistent, so much more uh, convicted, so much more courageous and clear in taking care of their business than we Christians are in taking care of our eternal business. Right? That's what Jesus is saying. The people of this world are, are, are very clear about what their future holds and they will strive and they will pursue with great conviction and commitment what their future holds for them. For many of the people in this world, this world is all that there is. And so they chase after the things of this world. What's good for themselves, right? And what's good for the people that they love, maybe. And so the people of this world are very committed and very consistent and very clever in, in studying hard and, and working hard to get what they want. They would, they would earn and they would save and they would spend right, to increase their value, their influence and their pleasures and their possessions. The people of this world are great at upskilling and investing and networking and at nurturing their assets and building their, their, their business and climbing the corporate ladder to achieve what they want to achieve based on the kind of future that they want. And when necessary, they will bend and they will break the rules without getting caught to be able to get ahead, right? right our people in the world, well, you know, the rules and the, 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 the regulations are there for us to, to bend a bit and break a bit to achieve what we want. No issues with that. You see, the world, people in it are very shrewd right, to secure their futures. More shrewd, Jesus says, than the people of God. And Jesus is telling his disciples that this principle of being shrewd to live now in light of the future is something that Christians ought to take on. But the big difference, the big difference is that our belief about what is most important in life is different from the world. Our belief in what our future holds is very different from the world, right? We believe, do we not, as Christians, that this life is not all that there is. We believe, do we not, that our lives should be lived for Jesus and for his coming kingdom. We believe, do we not, that the, the world is full of people who are spiritually dead, awaiting God's judgment, and need salvation through Jesus Christ. We believe, do we not, in life everlasting, where people are either truly and forever blessed in the kingdom of God, or they're truly and forever cursed and suffering and in despair outside of the kingdom of God. This is what we believe, because this is what Jesus has been teaching over the last six chapters. And the question is, do we shrewdly 
as God's people, live in light of these future eternal realities? Do we drive our attitudes and efforts and our aspirations and our ambitions and our actions, our investments and our influences to achieve the best possible eternal outcome for ourselves and for the people around us? The question is, how much more should we when we are the people of the light, with people who know the truth of God, who know the purposes and plans of the kingdom, how much more should we live out that life? based on the future that we are waiting for? How much more should we have focus, commitment, conviction, cleverness in the way we go about life according to this future? How much more? J.C. Rao, a Christian theologian, lamented many years ago, the diligence of worldly men about the things of time should put to shame the coldness of professing Christians about the things of eternity. The diligence of worldly men about the things of time should put to shame the coldness of professing Christians about the things of eternity. Now, which are we? Are we, are we like the world? Or are we really the people of God, concerned with the things of eternity in the way we live now? So the point Jesus makes, end of verse 8, is very clear, isn't it? Followers of Jesus must be more shrewd than those of this world in living in light of our future. We must be more shrewd than the people of this world in living in light of our future. This is the point of this parable. Now, as you can imagine, this point will dominate the whole of our lives. There is nothing uh, that we will ever do uh, in our lives that will not be impacted by this principle, if this is true. But Jesus will focus in on the issue of money, right? This is the topic in this passage. So he gives us three implications to do with money and shrewdly using money in light of our future. Firstly, he says in verse 9, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. Right? How we shrewdly use money is we make friends for ourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. Now, this is another confusing uh, sentence in this passage, full of confusing things. Now, I think the word unrighteous wealth here likely just means the money that is from this world, right? That money that belongs to this world. In the passage, in verse 11, it's contrasted right, with true riches. So money of this world versus the true riches of eternity of heaven. In verse 9, it is wealth that will fail you in that you can't bring it with you after death. So it sounds like it belongs to this world. So basically he's saying, use the money you've got now in this life to make friends, which is to invest in the, in the lives of people around us for their eternal gain and blessing, right? Invest our earthly money in friends for their eternal gain and blessing. And so when death comes, or when Jesus returns, and all that is left is the eternal dwelling of the kingdom of God, when all the money of this world has been burnt up and finished off with because it can't be brought into the next world, and what's left is whether we and our friends are in heaven or not. What is left is whether we and our friends are in heaven or not. The shrewd use of money now is to invest in people's eternal lives. Now, maybe you're wondering, how do I practically apply this, right? How do I practically apply this? Do I just, uh, does it mean that I just sell everything I've got and give it to what? Right? Evangelism, right? mission work, give it to the church. 
Now, I guess that's one way of applying it, uh, or maybe we want, just want to increase our offering, you know, that kind of, kind of application. Uh, yes, maybe, but I think there's other ways of thinking about how this applies right, in, in, in a real-life situation. Let me tell you three stories about what this might look like in real life. And you can see that there, these, this application it, is dependent really on who you are and your situation in life. But let me give you three stories. The first is a story back from 2003, uh, when I first moved down to Sydney to do ministry training. So I worked for a church for two years to see whether I could go into full-time ministry. And while I was there in Sydney, I lived with a guy whose parents were really rich. Right? They're really rich. They lived in the swanky eastern suburbs of Sydney called Vaucluse. And from their substantial dining room, you could see both the Sydney Opera House and the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Right? That's the view from his dining room. Now, this guy was so used to seeing that view that we would go there and we were like, oh, wow, we will gawk. And he was like, what are you looking at? Right? So, so used to the view. Um, anyway, his parents became Christians very late in life, like in their 70s. And this, uh, his parents realized that they wanted to use their money shrewdly right, to make friends for the kingdom of God. And so they realized also that their, their rich friends were really very snobby and they were really very separate. Right? They would only hang around with rich people. So what did they do? Right? They did the crazy rich Aussie thing and they threw big crazy rich banquets. And in these banquets, they would invite their rich friends. And then they would also invite a very prominent, famous evangelist. And at that time, it was the famous John Chapman, uh, the late John Chapman, who came and spoke at these events. Right? They would pour out their money. They would throw these dinners, using their own money, to make friends for the kingdom of God in the hope that eternal blessing would even come to the filthy rich of Sydney. Now, on the other end of the kind of wealthiness spectrum, let me tell you another story. Uh, back in those days, and even now, even through now, uh, but especially back in those days, uh, in uh, Focus, uh, the international student ministry that I worked at, it was about 50% Singaporean international students and 50% Malaysian international students. And the Malaysian ringgit back then was pretty much as bad as it is now in terms of trans uh, exchange rate. About three ringgit to one Australian dollar. Right? And so there would be these Malaysians, some of them were rich, yes, but others of them were just getting by, struggling even financially to pay for their fees and to pay for their living expenses. And we would go for lunches and dinners after church or fellowship group. And to go out for a lunch or dinner would cost about 30 ringgit per meal. Right? That's about 10 meals back in KL or Johor or Cebu or whatever they were from. Big investment just to go out to eat. But these Malaysians, many of them decided they would go every single week to spend or waste that 30 ringgit because they would want to bring along their non-Christian friends to be part of the Christian community, to get to know other Christians, to get to know the gospel. Or they would come to be able to invest time and energy into fellow believers, to be able to encourage them in their faith. And so these uh, poor Malaysians would spend their 30 ringgit each week just to eat a meal for the sake of the kingdom. Final story, closer to home. Many of you know our brother Darius. He was sitting here right before. Uh, he's um, married to... Um, name, mind blank. Janice, that's it. I was, like, was going to say Darius again. I was like, not married to Darius. Darius can be married to Darius. Janice, blank, mind blank. Uh, Darius is about to begin full-time ministry training in our church tomorrow morning at 10.30. Right, for the next year of his life, He's going to quit his job in the finance sector, earning the finance sector kind of money. And maybe in the following year, possibly, if I have anything to say about it, he will go and do full-time ministry back in Singapore. And then maybe for the rest of his life, he will give up work in the finance sector 
to work in the church in some kind of setting. He could be earning big bucks in the finance sector, I'm assuming. He looks like a big bucks kind of guy to me. Um, but he will be giving that up for one, two, maybe the rest of his life, one, two years of the rest of his life, for the sake of the kingdom. Now, his unbelieving family and friends will probably think he's crazy. Well, what happened when he came to Australia, right? Uh, what has Janice been saying to him, right? And, 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 and you know, uh, hypnotizing him or something, bewitching him. Even maybe his Christian family and friends might think it's not a very wise or sensible decision. Why give up such a high-paying career path, right, to be involved in this kind of thing? Other people can do it. But you see, for, for Darius, he's going to spend money this year, maybe next year, maybe for the rest of his life, investing in his future reality, living out his convictions, doing what he thinks is most clever given who he is and the opportunities that he has. And the question is, what about for you? Right, you may be as rich as my friend's parents. You may be as poor as Malaysians scraping the last ringgit, right, from the bottom of the piggy bank. Or you may be somewhere in between. I don't know where you are, and I don't know what your life is like, but what would it look like? What would it look like for you to be shrewd with your money? What would it look like for you to invest in friendships for their eternal blessing? What can you be doing with your money and with your possessions and with your time or whatever else to help people around you come to know and trust Jesus? Perhaps you're at a stage now where you need to invest in yourself to grow in your knowledge and understanding of God. Maybe rather than spending thousands of dollars, just spending thousands of dollars on your degree and on your, on your books for studies, for your secular work, why not invest in Christian growth? Right? You know, you, you drop $100 for that medical textbook, but you won't pay $10 right, for God's big picture. Right? You, you drop $1,000 to go for a holiday right, in wherever, but you won't spend $300 to go to a Christian conference. Like, what is up with that? Right? Invest perhaps in yourself, in your growth, in Christian ministry. If you have a family, what is your family money about? What is it used to invest in? What is it used to spend money on? Is it for you to have opportunities to keep reaching out as a family to family and friends who do not know Jesus? The first big implication is the shrewd use of our money. Now, the second big implication from this passage in verses 10 to 12 is faithfulness, right? Faithfulness. The unrighteous wealth, the earthly money that we have, is a stewardship, right? It is from God that's been entrusted for us to use, the big difference between people who believe in God and know that he's our creator and our sustainer and our provider and those who don't is that those who do know that everything that we have belongs to God. That everything we have, our life and our possessions, our children, or whatever it is that we have, is really just an entrusting to us for us to be used where we have to give an account to our creator. We have to live faithfully with what we've been given. Now, in light of eternity... The amount of wealth we have now, whether it's a little bit, and I know many are poor students here, or whether it's a lot, we'll all have to give an account for how we've used it. Jesus contrasts the, unwealthy, the unrighteous wealth of this life with the true riches of eternal life. And Jesus is saying here that the, the little, the comparatively little that we are entrusted with in this life is nothing compared to what will be given in the life that is to come. Now, if you read on to your New Testament, you will know that what will be ours in the life to come will be everything. Everything will be given to Christ, 
and Christ will give everything to his people. We will rule over, we will be in charge of the entire new creation with Jesus, our brother and king. That's what will be given to us. And so how we manage the small, temporary, little now has a huge impact as to what will be given to us, entrusted to us in the heavenly future. And so we must be faithful. Now what does it mean to be faithful with what we have, with our money in particular? Well, I think that the first thing about being faithful is to know that our money belongs to God. I think that's a mind shift that needs to start, right? We are faithful when we realize that we are entrusted with something, and then we use it knowing that there is someone over us who will uh, watch us, right? But I think for many of us, when we look into our bank account, when we open up our wallets, we see that this money is mine. It is my hard-earned money, or it is mine because my parents have given it to me, so now it's mine. And when I run out, I ask for more, and I use it for me. So I think the first thing about faithfulness is to realize that ultimately, wherever we get the money from, whether from our employer or our parents or the government, ultimately it came from God. And then it might make us think, how am I going to be trustworthy and faithful with the little or the lot that God has given me? Now, the second thing about faithfulness, I think it means, is thoughtfulness, right? Someone who uses money purposefully and thoughtfully, right? who understands that Life involves spending money on daily necessities, but life also involves investing money for the kingdom of God. Like we know it is right to spend money to survive and thrive in our day-to-day lives. There's nothing godly about no, having no food and having no drink and having no clothes and having no food. Right? God has structured life such that we need money to live and survive. But we must define what it means to survive and to thrive. We need to decide what's the quality and the standard of life based on what God's word says, based on kingdom priorities, right? It's not about us saying, I want this kind of life, and then God has to provide for me, and I'll trust that he will. No. It's about having that quality of life shaped by God's word and God's purposes. And then we surely use our money as best as we can to bring about eternal blessings for ourselves and for others as well. So whether you have a few dollars in your wallet, or you have hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars in your bank account, be thoughtful about your money. Now, the first most practical thing I can say about money is, have a budget. Right? Have a budget. Now, you might only have $10 a week allowance from your parents. Right? $10 still goes somewhere. It goes to the bank. It goes to buying Pokemon cards. It goes to bubble tea. Or you might have $10,000 a week coming into your bank account. Right, where you're paying for mortgage and living expenses and insurance, whatever. That's amazing. Over the years, I speak to quite a few who are in the student phase of life, and uh, I would say, so do you have a budget? And they're like, budget? What's that, right? Um, you know, isn't that what the government does, right? That I hear about once a year. And I'm like, okay, why do I need a budget? I'm not earning any money. I mean, what, you're not earning any money. What, what, how do you pay your bills then, right? Oh, I get money from my parents, or I get money from scholarship, or wherever. Well, then you are in charge of money, aren't you? And if you are in charge of money, if you're giving money to, to use, then you're going to account for it. I know, I know students who you will spend up big, they'll eat out many meals, and then by the, uh, the end of the month, before the next time payday comes, right, for mom and dad, right, they run out of money, and so they just ask for more. And they, they don't learn the value of money. They're not thoughtful about money. Start small, be faithful in small things, even that $10 a week or that, that $1,000 a month or that $100,000, it scales, doesn't it? 
If you're thoughtful, you budget, you know where your money goes. And then review your budget once in a while. As you're challenged by God's word, as you're challenged by the coming kingdom and what it means for you to have opportunities to use your money in a way to invest in people's lives, then change your budget. But be thoughtful about your money. Whether you have a little or a lot, be faithful with what God has trusted, entrusted to you in light of the eternity that is to come. Now, the final implication uh, that we see is found in verse 13. <clears throat> Our attitudes and use of money really boils down to which God we are really serving, doesn't it? It shows what kind of God we really serve. Now, by definition, the whole concept of having a master means that you can only have one, right? That's by definition. You either have a master, uh, you have a master, and everybody else is not your master. You're loyal to one, and you're not loyal to anybody else. You're devoted to one, and in a way, you despise the rest. That's why it's a love-hate thing. It's a contrast. It's, it's all or nothing. And for Christians, we worship and serve God alone. And we must express that love and loyalty in the way that we use our money. Now, we, we won't serve and worship money, but we will use money to serve and worship God. That's the point here, isn't it? When it comes to money, we won't serve and worship it, but we will use it to serve and worship God. Now, many of us here are probably unlikely to really bow down and worship money, right? So it seems like a very funny contrast, right? You cannot serve money in God, but who really serves money? Well, some of you might. Some of you might have that real excitement every day when you open your bank account to see how much money you've got in there. And maybe some of you will start getting into shares. And I know uni students these days are getting into shares, amazingly. And they will like every day check to see what the stock market's doing, whether their portfolio is increasing or whether it's decreasing, right? And you get consumed with seeing how much how much money is, is, is in your balance, in your bank account. But really, many of us won't pursue money like that. We won't stare lovingly and longingly at money and, 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 and strive after it like that. But we show that we do not really serve God if we don't use our money in a way that honors and worships God. Right? If our, service, our earning and our saving and our spending does not reflect love and loyalty towards God, then somehow God isn't really the one that you truly serve. <clears throat> now, how do we know whether we, we love and truly love and serve God with our money or not? Now, how do we know that? <clears throat> Sorry. So let's think practically. Now, I think the first thing is that it's to do with earning. Let's start with earning. Right? How we, uh, our work and our career choices right, will tell us whether we are serving God or we're serving money and what money can give us. Now, what do I mean by that? <clears throat> I'll give you a story. I'll tell you a story about uh, career choices. Uh, when I went through um, high school, at, towards the end of high school, I wanted to be a physiotherapist, right? Uh, and the reason for that was because I was quite interested in people and I was quite keen on the gospel and I saw that physiotherapy gave me a lot of opportunities uh, to speak to people. Because I had so many injuries, I saw so many physios, I thought, oh, that would be a good job. Um, and I wanted to do that. After that, I went to Singapore for national service, and I went to a very rich church. Right, everyone in this church, I think bar one guy, lived in a landed property or a condominium. No HDB dwellers in that church. 
All right, and so I will go and hang out with these people and live, uh, go to their swanky uh, condominiums with their beautiful pools and their big houses and uh, realize they were either all doctors, lawyers, or they owned, you know, like um, Daikin Aircon and they worked for like IBM and all this kind of... And I was thinking, oh, physios is not going to get me this kind of lifestyle, right? They're all these Christians and they're so rich and I'm going to be a poor physio in Singapore, uh, in Australia. So I decided, man, I'll go do medicine, right? Not because of any reason other than because it will give me more money. And so uh, towards the end of NS, I called my dad and said, oh, I'm thinking about uh, doing medicine. And back then, it was already post-grad, so you, you want to do undergrad medicine, you go to Sydney or Melbourne. And my dad said, oh, no, it costs too much money. Forget about it. Right? <laughs> Thank God for that, right? Because that was the best thing. I had to shelve those plans, and I think uh, it would have been really bad if I had gone and done medicine with that kind of motivation. Now, maybe you're not so bad as me, and it's not so blatant, but our work and career choices tells us a lot about why we're earning money. The kind of choices we make about what course we decide to do, what course we want to change to or from, what kind of job we want to apply when we graduate. Right? What is it that's driving your decision to study a certain thing or to, to make a certain job choice, to, to get or not get that promotion, right? to make a change, right? to change to one company to another? What's driving those decisions? Is it really the honor of God and, and the service of your family for the kingdom and friends for the kingdom? Or is it really, at the end of the day, about loving money and what money can give you? What about our budget, our bank and credit card statements? What does that show? If you were to pull out your bank statement, your credit card bill for the last three months, what, what, would, you, what would it show about what you love, about what you live for? How much of it can you really see a kingdom component now, don't get me wrong, you pay your rent, it could be a kingdom component because you're living in a place where you feel like you're near church, you're near people you can serve, uh, and, and you're spending that money, right? But if you look at your rent and it's like $500 a week because you just want to live on your own in a two-bedroom flat, you want to have your own private study and your king-size bed and a nice, really nice bathroom in the middle of the city, and those decisions are that $500 rent is really for yourself. Does it make sense? The choices about how you spend when you eat out. You can eat out for your own pleasure and for your own enjoyment to crave your foodie cravings, or you can eat out in such a way that thinks about serving other people. Right? You always just eat alone and eat the best food because no one else will pay that kind of money. Or do you want to eat out with other people right, in just some dingy Tuong eatery because you get to hang out with people that you might be able to influence for eternity? What is the goal of our earning and our saving? and our spending. Now, we finished this long sermon series on discipleship with a very concrete and practical challenge because it's, it's sometimes hard to figure out, am I a follower of Jesus or not? But if I say to you, go home and open up your banking app and ask yourself, what does my money say about my discipleship? Maybe you have an idea as to what you need to work on. Money, we all have it. Some of us a little bit. Some of us a lot. And all of us somewhere in between. My money matters. How we view it, how we use it, it shows what we're living for, who we're living for. It shows whether we're kingdom people or not. It shows whether we're living shrewdly as Christians in the present in light of the future, or whether we are living just like the world, chasing after the things of this world. It shows whether we're disciples of Christ. And so we leave Luke's gospel for now, and we'll be moving into Revelation next week. But why not 
in the quiet times over the next week. And I know sometimes we struggle to figure out what should I read, right, for quiet time this week. Why not go back to Luke chapter 9, verse 18, and begin where the series begin, began? Read about Jesus, be convicted and convinced once again that he is the king, your king and savior. And what it means to be a Christian is to follow him, giving our lives to him. And then read through and think about what discipleship looks like as we've looked at for the past few months. And maybe see how you've gone with applying that. Give thanks and rejoice in the things that you've learned and the ways that you've changed. But work hard at repenting and changing on things that you haven't. That will be a great way to finish this series in the coming week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity in which it speaks. Certainly there are parts of the Bible that are hard to understand, but what we've heard today, what we've heard for the past few months, it certainly has not been hard to understand. Yet it is hard to hear because it is so challenging. We confess to you that we do find it hard to see Jesus as the true king and only savior of our lives. We confess that we find it hard to give our lives entirely over to Jesus, to trust him that he knows best, to listen to him because he knows best, and to obey him because it is what's best for us. And so we pray for your help by your spirit, empower us to keep listening and to keep trusting and to keep living out what your word says. Today, we thank you for the very practical and concrete lesson on money. Please help us to spend the time really reflecting on how our use of money shows what we're truly like, what we truly live for, what we truly believe in. Help us to live in light of the kingdom of God that is to come. Help us to be more shrewd than the people of this world in living for a future that we believe in, that we have, we've, we've, we've so graciously had our eyes open to. Help us to use our money in a way that really does make friends for their eternal blessing and benefit. Help us to be faithful to see that all of what we have has been entrusted to, you, to us by you. And help us to show that in all that we, we, we earn and, and spend and save, that we do it because we love you and serve you. All this we pray in Jesus' name.